one there, yep. I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, looking at chapter 18, verse 31 through chapter 19, verse 10. So we will be spanning the chapter, going through 31 through 43 and 18, then 19, 1 through 10. We are in a time of year where we are considering Jesus coming to earth. And as we consider this, this, uh, this event, this time where Jesus came to earth, we often ask the question and answer the question in this time, what did Jesus come to do? Well, Jesus tells us himself in the word what he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. How did Jesus do it? Well, he did that by proclaiming the gospel, dying on the cross, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, paying that debt for us. This evening, we're going to consider two separate accounts of Jesus' interaction with two different men, one a blind beggar, the other a excessively wealthy publican. Both men have problems that need to be solved. Both men identify Christ as the solution. Both men are redeemed from that which afflicts them. And we'll be able to see in this contrasting picture, one of the poor blind beggar, the other of the wealthy publican, that Jesus came to do the same thing for both. But first we see a brief interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to pick up there in verse 31 of chapter 18 in Luke this evening, where the Bible says in 31 through 33, Then he, that would be Jesus, took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. This is a very interesting statement by our Lord. It is not the first time in the book that Jesus has announced his own death. But what is so interesting about the times that Jesus does this prior to his death is how confused the disciples are by it each time. It really, it's not even that they're confused. It it really falls on deaf ears in a very real way. Way back in Luke 9, 22, we read these words when Jesus asked them about his identity. Luke 9, 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. They were just as uh, dumbfounded by Jesus' statement then as they are here in Luke 18, some nine chapters later. He tells them he must die, although they have not understood what's meant by it. This is actually officially the third time in Luke 18 that Jesus has announced. It's the second time in the book of Luke, but as we continue in the synoptics, Matthew and Mark, we see a third time where uh, at least one more time where, where Jesus would announce his death. What is particularly unique about this account in Luke 18, however, is that Jesus cites the prophetic promises concerning the Son of Man. To this day, the Jewish people would not regard any scriptural account where Messiah must die 
though we find it in many places in the Bible. If you were to go to an Orthodox Jew and ask whether or not their Messiah would or had to die, they would say, no, that doesn't even make sense from their perspective. Jesus states specifically the Old Testament prophecies that speak of Messiah, and he says specifically they speak that he would be delivered unto Gentiles, mocked, spitefully entreated, and spitted upon, scourged, put to death, and raised again the third day. That he would be mocked, we read in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. This is something that the people say to Jesus as Jesus is hanging on the cross. That he would be spitefully treated and spat upon. We read in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That he would be scourged. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That he would be killed. We read in Daniel 9, 26. The Bible says, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. We'll talk more about this in our morning service in the weeks coming up as we talk more through Revelation. But it says here that Messiah would be cut off after three score and two weeks, 62 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel, that he would rise again. We read in Psalm 16, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. So I give you all, I, I didn't give you a comprehensive list of verses as to necessarily fulfilling every one of these prophecies. There are only two of the things that Jesus mentioned that I did not give verses for because I'm not able to find specific references that I, I felt comfortable saying, yes, that is it. One of those is that he was specifically delivered up to the Gentiles. I could not find that. Maybe uh, you know of one, and if so, by all means, please come up and tell me afterward. I could not find one where he, it says that he would specifically be delivered up to the Gentiles. The other one that I could not explicitly find is one where it explicitly says Messiah would, would raise again on the third day. Um, we know the prophecy of Jonah or the, 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 the type of Jonah uh, of him being in the belly of the great fish for three days. And uh, Jesus links that to him raising again on the third day. Uh, yet I did not see anything else specifically. There are a couple other times in the Old Testament where it speaks of the third day, something would happen. And so maybe it's those that Jesus is speaking of um, but none of them I felt comfortable saying this is fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, so, of course, where the Bible does not necessarily mesh with our expectations, um, it's our expectations or our understanding that is faulty. It's not the Word of God. God has given us what we need to know. 
Please take special note here that there are many who would disagree with these Old Testament verses being used to speak of Messiah. As I mentioned, many Orthodox Jews would take many of those uh, passages of Scripture uh, that were written by David or written by Isaiah and would say that either it's being spoken only of Isaiah or David, or they'd say it's being spoken of the actual people of Israel themselves. And yet our Lord himself has taught us how we ought to interpret these passages. The New Testament sheds full light on Old Testament. So where the Old Testament is vague, if the New Testament clarifies, we recognize that the New Testament clarification is God's clarification of Old Testament mysteries. To this end, when Jesus makes quite clear the reality of these events, we should recognize its teaching as authoritative. As we mentioned, however, the teaching does fall upon deaf ears. So we read in verse 34, And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. The revelation of these words would not begin to take on its true meaning until Luke 24. When we get to Luke 24, we're going to read where uh, following Jesus' resurrection in verse 8, the disciples remembered Jesus' words that he had foretold these things. It'll begin to click after the resurrection that Jesus foretold these things, and then it will make fullest, uh, they'll, they'll fully understand it as Jesus teaches them for those days after the resurrection, and then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost and the Word of God is open to them in a new way. So this brief interaction that we see between Jesus and his disciples uh, is almost an interlude. It's transitioning us to that mindset again. They are still on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus still has his plan in mind. He still is singularly focused on what he has to do, and what he has to do is die for the sins of mankind and raise again in victory over the grave. We now transition our minds to Jesus' interaction with the first of those two men that I was telling you about. In verse 35 and 36, we read of the first man. The Bible says, And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging, and hearing the multitude pass by, he, that would be the beggar, asked what it meant. So Jesus is coming near to Jericho. Jericho was a city that sat near the bank of the Jordan River. It was about 15 miles east of Jerusalem, and it was a full 3,400 feet lower in elevation. So if you're walking toward Jericho from Jerusalem, you're walking downhill pretty significantly. Uh, 15 miles, 3,400 feet of elevation change. If you're walking from Jericho up to Jerusalem, then it's, it's a bit of an uphill climb as you go that distance. The first... Um, time we, we read of Jericho proper is when Joshua and the nation of Israel is entering into the promised land. It's the first city that Joshua and the nation of Israel encountered in the promised land, and it was utterly destroyed. After its destruction, the Bible says Joshua put a curse on the city, put a curse really on any man who would attempt to rebuild the city. It was an accursed city. So Joshua said in Joshua 26, uh, 6 verse 26, and Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before, whom the Lord, uh, before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof with his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So Joshua puts a curse on anyone who would rebuild this city because this city was an accursed city. God said it's an accursed city. 
It is a, a city that has a curse on it. Joshua thus says that the man who would attempt to rebuild it, when he lays the foundation at the beginning of his attempt, his firstborn son will die. And then at the end of his endeavor, when he puts up the gates, which would be the last thing you would put up in a city, his youngest son, his final lastborn son, would die. This prophecy comes to pass in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. The Bible says, In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. In the days of Ahab, the, key, the evil king in northern Israel, a man in that wicked nation named Hiel built Jericho, and he built it with his, with, with, at the expense of his two sons' lives. He may have had other sons, but his eldest son, Abiram, died when the foundation was laid. His youngest son, Segeb, died with the gates being put on. But Jericho was rebuilt, and it stood until the days of Jesus. We've seen Jericho come up thus far only in one instance in uh, Luke, and that is in a parable, right? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan is on the road to Jericho when he is accosted and he is beaten and stripped and, and such. And that's the only time thus far in Luke it has come up. So we have this introduction. He's, this man is outside of Jericho. He's a blind man. And he's sitting by the way begging. He would have to beg outside of the city. It's not something that they would have customarily allowed inside the city. So he's outside the city. He's where most of the people are. It's the best access point, right? Everybody comes in and out of the gates. So you sit by the gate. People see you there. And he suddenly hears a commotion. Many more people passing at once than would be normal. Much more commotion than what is normal. His senses having been heightened, uh, most likely, he says, this sounds different, right? There's something going on here. So he asks, what is going on here? Verses 37 and 38. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. So he says, what's all the commotion? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, the blind man, like all Israel, had heard of him, of his teachings, of his miracles. And the blind man perhaps thought, this is my chance. There's little doubt, in my mind at least, that the heart of every invalid longed to meet the great teacher. He'd no doubt heard of those who had been healed, of the lepers cleansed, of the blind who saw, of the lame who walked. He no doubt had heard of those things. And he thought, maybe I can be the next one. So he cries out. And the people try to silence him. We'll see in just a moment. We read in verse 39. They which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. The people rebuked the blind man. He's out of line. He's out of his place. He's bothering a man of great importance. But this man would not be dissuaded. As they sought to silence him, the Bible says he cried out all the more in desperation at this point, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Using Jesus' title, the son of David, that recognizes, even as we spoke of this morning, 
in our time in Sunday school, that the, the covenant that was given to David, that through David would come the messianic line, to say that he was the son of David, the son of man, means he is the one for whom God had promised to come through David, that he is Messiah. It's a messianic title. It's a cry of acknowledgement that this man believes Jesus to be that Messiah, that he believes Jesus to be the Savior. And so he cries, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't feel entitled. He doesn't feel like it's due to him. It's not what he has coming to him. It's mercy that he asks for. Simple mercy. Verses 40 and 41. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought near unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. In characteristic fashion, Jesus stops. Jesus stops not explicitly just because someone was crying for him, but because this man was exhibiting faith. And faith always gets a response from God. Faith always gets a response from God. Where there is faith, God responds. This man had enough faith to cry out in confidence that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Messiah. There's not a, if you're the son of David, there's not a, well, I wonder if he's the son of David. Let's just roll the die and see. This is him saying, thou art the son of David. Have mercy on me because I know you can. So Jesus stops. He, he, he has the man approach him and he asks the man, what, what would you have me to do? What is the mercy for which you are crying? And the man states plainly, as we would expect, that I may receive my sight. Verses 42 and 43. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Jesus says, Receive thy sight. Then a beautiful object lesson of spiritual redemption. He says, Thy faith hath saved thee. Jesus' power was the power that healed him. Jesus' will was the will that willed it to be. But the man's faith is what brought Jesus' power to bear on his condition. So too it is with salvation. It is God who has willed salvation upon the world. It is Jesus' sacrifice that has positioned salvation to take place. But it is man's faith which brings God's will and Jesus' sacrifice to bear on his condition. Thy faith hath saved thee. This is not a work. This is not an accomplishment. This is not me being able to pat myself on the back and say, look what I did. That blind man did not walk away saying, wow, I have pretty good faith. That was not in his mind. It was not about the, the, the purity of his faith. It was not about any of that. It was simply that he was willing to exercise it. It was simply that he was willing to place himself under the master. Thy faith hath saved thee. The man, seeing, followed Jesus, the text says, glorifying God. Following Jesus, glorifying God, telling people, I was blind and now I see. I was blind and now I see. I, I cried out for mercy and Jesus gave me mercy. 
I believed that he was who he said he was. I believed that he did what he said he did. I believed he could do what he said he could do, and he can, and he did it for me. I'm a testimony of his power. And so those that saw it, those that knew that this was the blind man, remember Jesus was going into Jericho, right? He was heading into Jericho. So this blind man, everybody, I mean, okay, so the blind man walks into Jericho, right? People have been seeing, who knows how long people have been seeing this man at the gate, this blind man at the gate. He's blind. And now here he is walking around, not bumping into people, not, not tripping over stuff, praising Jesus, saying, I, I, I'm here, look, I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. I can see you. I can see everything. And everybody in Jericho says, isn't this the guy that sits at the gate blind? Yeah, that is him. And so everybody glorified God, gave praise unto God that saw what was done on that day. So Jesus enters into the city of Jericho. This formerly blind man is entering with him, testifying of God's goodness. And now as Jesus enters in, we are introduced to a second man. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 19, the Bible says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. We're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus, who lived within Jericho. And we know several things about him. First, we know that he was a publican, but not just a publican, but he was a chief, the chief publican, the text tells us. Now, we've already spoken of publicans, I don't know how many times in the book of Luke, right? By now, you should know your publicans. You should know what it means that a person is a publican. They are Jewish tax collectors for Rome. They were generally dishonest people. They, were, uh, they, they used intimidation and brute force to get money from people. They skimmed off the top. They were wealthy by fleecing their own people in the name of the occupying power of the region. Nobody liked publicans. As a matter of fact, we'll see in just a moment that they are going to call him in the city. The Jews are going to call him a sinner. We've only heard that used one other time in the book of Luke, and that was the harlot that washed Jesus' feet. They literally equate this publican on the same level with the same term as the harlot, the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet. This man is a sinner, they will call him. So we know that he was a chief publican. He was the top dog. He was very wealthy as, um, as, as a, a point in this. A very wealthy man. Finally, we learn that he was a man of little stature. He was a short guy. He was rich, he was powerful, but he was a tiny guy. Now, the Jews are characteristically not big people. I was looking at a survey this past week, uh, or a couple weeks ago when I wrote this, and it turns out that... Um, the average by survey in 2012 for, I think, 14,000 Jews that were polled, the average height of a man was about five foot six in the Jewish community today. And men are generally taller today than they were back then uh, by, by many metrics. Um, and so if the average for a Jewish man is somewhere around the mid five foot range and Zacchaeus couldn't see over the crowd of Jewish people, you can imagine that he was a pretty short guy if he couldn't see over a crowd of five foot six men and uh, women in, in that crowd, he was probably a pretty short guy. Verses four and five. And he ran before and climbed up 
into a sycamore tree to see him. So he climbs up into a tree, this, this rich, powerful, chief publican climbs up into a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, the Bible says, he looked up. He's walking and all of a sudden, he looks up, there's Zacchaeus. And saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. I want a fellowship with you. He knows Zacchaeus' name. He calls him by name. He says, climb out of that tree. I want a fellowship with you. Why Zacchaeus? Because fellowship with Christ has nothing to do with stature, has nothing to do with wealth. Fellowship with Christ has everything to do with faith. And this man had faith. We'll see the evidence of that in a little bit. I'd like to take a quick pause, though, and consider with me the importance of this event from another perspective. If you recall, just last week, in Luke 18, we studied Jesus' words. And as we were studying Jesus' words, we came across a man, the certain ruler, if you recall, right? And the certain ruler was a wealthy man, and he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, sell everything that, uh, well, he said, do, do the commandments. The rich ruler said, check, I've done all that for my youth. Jesus said, well, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, then you'll have riches in heaven and come and follow me. And the man walks away sorrowful because he had great riches. And then Jesus said those words, which we studied last week. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That interaction, our study, recognizing what the Bible has to say about the difficulty that the wealthy and the powerful and the honorable and the intelligent have to come to Christ. And then, of course, our conclusion is that, that what is impossible with man is possible with God, so it's certainly possible. Keep all of that in your mind, because we are only a few verses removed from that. And now we have this rich man, and not just any rich man, but a rich publican, Zacchaeus. So keep in your mind everything that Jesus said as we continue speaking about Zacchaeus. We continue in verses 6 and 7. And he made haste, that would be Zacchaeus, and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is, here it is, a sinner. There's that term, a sinner. The prospect of Jesus in his home, like with the harlot who washed his feet. The publican was an outcast of Jewish society. Certainly he was a Jew, certainly all of that was true, but he was a sinner. This was a man that everybody regarded as being tainted. He lived a life of sin. It was his profession. It was his dedication. And this caused the people to really struggle, to murmur at Jesus' actions. But look at the true character. Look at the fruit of Zacchaeus' faith here as we get into verse 8. The Bible says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him 
fourfold. Here's the evidence of Zacchaeus' faith. Jesus sought for the evidence of repentance. He sought for that man, that certain ruler. And he said, sell what you have and give it to the poor. Not because selling what he had and giving it to the poor would save him, but that selling what he had and giving to the poor would be a, a, a visible manifestation that this man had the faith that was necessary to put Christ in the gospel above himself and his love for the world. And this is exactly what we see with Zacchaeus, is it not? This is the exact fruit that we see born here, that Zacchaeus in faith committed himself to give half of his goods unto the poor. And then that he would restore fourfold anything that he had taken from a man by false accusation. If he had ever gone up to a man because he wanted some taxes or he wanted some money and told the Roman soldiers, this man hasn't paid me, even though that man had paid him. Or this man didn't give me enough, even though that man had given him enough. If he'd ever used his power or his intimidation or his, his capacity to, to defraud anyone, he says, I'm going to pay back fourfold anyone that I've defrauded on top of giving half of my goods to the poor. Again, these works were not the means by which he accepted Christ or was saved or anything of the sort. But this was the fruit of repentance. This was the works that reflected the change which had come over him, the decision which he had made to follow Christ. And we'll talk more about the fruit of faith in our application today. So it is the final two verses that we consider this evening. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus says this. Jesus said unto him, he's speaking to Zacchaeus, this day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus made no secret about the fact that he was on earth to offer the kingdom to the children of Abraham, to the physical nation of Israel. Until Jesus' rejection, his death, and his resurrection, this was the will of the Father. After Jesus' reje rejection, death, resurrection, Israel would be set aside for a time. They'd be put on pause. We'll talk more about that in our Revelation series. And this would take place until the fullness of the Gentile world would come in. But here Jesus tells the people who would murmur at his declaration, why should not salvation come to Zacchaeus' house? He's a son of Abraham, just as they. He has borne fruit, meat unto repentance, just as they. What disqualifies him more than any other? He's a rich man. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Yet what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this man had faith. And if this man has faith, what should hinder him? Aren't you so glad sin doesn't hinder us from salvation? I mean, it's kind of the other, it's kind of the opposite, right? Sin is what drives us to salvation. Sin is what makes salvation so necessary. The reality is we are all sinners. And that is bad news. But that bad news gives way to the best of news, which is that since we're all sinners, the playing field is leveled. And because that playing field is leveled, that means Jesus can offer salvation unto all. We've talked about it before. Aren't you so glad that there isn't one righteous person outside of Christ who gave himself for us? If there was but one perfectly righteous person on this earth, if there was but one person that never sinned, he'd blow out the curve. 
He'd blow out the curve for everyone else. If there was one person that was sinlessly righteous, then God could not be just in giving anyone else salvation because that man would then be treated unjustly by, by virtue of others who, didn't, who, who had sinned getting into heaven when he had been sinlessly perfect. But because nobody is sinlessly perfect, we're all in need of salvation. Jesus Christ can offer mercy to all. Zacchaeus was just as much a child of Abraham, just as much a child of sin as anyone. And so God, in his goodness, could offer mercy even to that great sinner, the man Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, having received this mercy, the blind man having received his mercy, shouts and testifies of the greatness of God. Zacchaeus, a man of great wealth, a man of great means, having received mercy, not only shouts and declares the greatness of God, but he takes that which he had amassed in this life and he begins to do with it what God would have him to do, which is to distribute as God would see fit. A man who has placed himself on Christ's side as evidenced by the fruit of his actions. And this is why the Son of Man has come, to seek and to save the lost. Specifically, as Jesus would say in Matthew 15, 24, he had come to the lost sheep of Israel. Zacchaeus is one of those lost sheep. It doesn't matter what he had done. It doesn't matter who he was. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor he is. This is a wonderful clarification passage to remind us that Jesus is not saying in Luke 18, the rich cannot come to faith. Indeed, just a few verses later, a rich man comes to faith. He was a lost sheep. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. The theme running throughout all of these passages today is redemption. Luke 18 verses 31 to 34 spoke of the means of redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke 18, 35 through 43 showed the redemption of those who will seek him with all of their hearts. Luke 19 verses 1 through 10 revealed redemption to any who will seek God on his terms. And that brings us to our time of application this evening. Point number one, Jesus Christ bruised that we might be healed, scorned that we might be forgiven. Let us never lose focus on this most important of truths. Foundationally to these two accounts of men whose faith saved them, the one man's faith being manifest in his cries for mercy, the other man's faith being manifest in his desire to meet with the Lord, and then the fruit of his faith manifesting in his generosity to others. And yet the foundation of both of these men's faith was that Jesus was inevitably going through Jericho so that he could make his way up to Jerusalem. And there he would be bruised and battered and shamed and scorned and spat upon and hung upon a cross and killed and rise again three days later. This is the direction that he's going. Never forget that Jesus on the way to the cross is doing these things. That the faith that is saving these men and women is a faith in the person of Jesus Christ, is a faith that, that necessitated that he would go to the cross to pay for their sin. For without that payment, there is no salvation. 
I love the order of everything that happened between Jesus and the blind man. Everything that happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus points back in the text to Luke 18, verses um, 31 to 34, where Jesus is announcing his death. But it points forward to that event, which is that crescendo upon which all of this hinges. And if you have a habit of writing in your Bible, I might encourage you to draw a line from thy faith hath saved thee in chapter 18, verse 42, back to chapter 18, verse 32 and 33, where Jesus declares his atoning work. And I might encourage you to go to chapter 19, verse 9, where Jesus says salvation has come to this house today in Zac of, of Zacchaeus' house. And draw a line back to 18, verses 32 and 33, where Jesus declares his atoning work. Because the mercy that we see him show to the blind man on that day and the love that we see him exhibit to Zacchaeus in that city is driven by Jesus' purpose that he would bear the pain and the shame and the sorrow and the separation and the wrath that we might be saved. That's why Jesus is going where he's going. That's why he's doing what he's doing. That's why he's passing through Jericho to begin with, to get to Jerusalem so that he could die for the sins of Zacchaeus. So that he could die for Zacchaeus' extortion and for Zacchaeus' intimidation and for Zacchaeus' covetousness. The reason why Jesus was passing through Jericho on that day is so that he could die for that blind man and for all of that blind man's sins so that he could die for the sins of every person that was following him on that day, so that he could die for the sins of those that were saying, this man is a sinner. Doesn't Jesus know that? Why is, it, why is he entering into his house? So that Jesus could die for each and every one of them. That's where Jesus was going when he stopped, looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, this day I must abide in your house. We quoted Isaiah 53 verse 5 earlier in our text. Let's consider the context in verses uh, four, and four through six of Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus said in regard to Zacchaeus on that day that he was a child of Abraham. Jesus said in Matthew 15, I am come to the lost sheep of Israel. But surely, on, by the testimony of Isaiah 53, 6, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. You may not be a rich, covetous, dishonest man like Zacchaeus. You may not be a murderer or a drunkard or an adulterer in the purest form of the word. Certainly by Jesus' standard in Matthew 5, we're all those things, right? If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. If you've hated someone in your heart, you've murdered them already. By that standard, we've already offended the law. But you may not be in the purest form any of those things. But know this, that all we, like sheep, 
have gone astray. We have each of us turned to his own way. And for this reason, all things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man had to be accomplished. Why is it that Jesus had to be delivered up to the Gentiles and mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted upon and scourged and put to death? Why is it that three days later he rose again? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. Because we have turned everyone to his own way. And so the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He did it because he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. So number one, remember Jesus Christ. Bruised that we might be healed. Scorned that we might be forgiven. Number two, an exhortation. Never be dissuaded or discouraged from Christ. We read of two men this evening, each having their own reason not to come to Christ. For the blind man, it was absolutely socially unacceptable for him to cry out to this teacher for mercy. It was for him just to keep his mouth shut and to let Jesus pass by. But how could this blind man allow the great healer to pass by without asking for mercy? It's absolutely unreasonable, isn't it? It's absolutely unreasonable for this blind man to maintain his social place when the man who could heal him of his blindness is walking by. The people turn to him and beckon to him to cease. Tell him, keep your mouth shut. This is not your place. But such insistence was not going to stop him from crying out for what he knew he needed with all of his heart. Such insistence harkens back to Jesus' words at the beginning of Luke 17 where he gave that parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. It harkens back to Jesus' words in Luke 11, where uh, we see the parable of the sleeping neighbor and the importunist neighbor. It harkens all the way back to Jacob wrestling with the Lord and saying as they wrestled till the break of the dawn, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so we cling to the words of the prophet Jeremiah as he spoke for the Lord, saying in Jeremiah 29, 13, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Don't ever let anybody dissuade you from Christ. Don't ever let anybody say you can't come to Christ. And, and certainly in, in regard to salvation, that is the case. Don't ever let anybody say you're not something or you're not ready or you're not there. If Christ is drawing and you are ready to come, come. But Christian, don't let anyone dissuade you from Christ. You're getting excited about the Lord and you want to move forward for the Lord. And people are telling you, look, you just got to cool it with this, with this religious stuff. You're just, you're going overboard. Maybe, okay, go to one more church service or something, but you are, you're just, you're going too far. Don't, don't let anyone dissuade you from Christ. You're called to the mission field and people say, look, that's, that's pretty serious. I, I, oh, whatever, get your training, but, but really, you're going to go there. You're going to do that. You're going to, you're going to sell everything and, and go to the mission field. You're going to give everything. Are you crazy? Don't let anyone dissuade you from Christ. Don't let anyone say, look, this is not what normal people do. Look, this is not socially acceptable. Look, this is not normal. Don't let anyone dissuade you from Christ. 
If you seek him, you'll find him. If you'll search with all your heart. The words of the Lord himself in Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Don't let anyone dissuade you from drinking deeply of that well. From digging deeper. From going deeper. Don't let anyone look at you and say, hey, look, cool it. You just need to back off your zeal a little bit. Seek him. Seek him. But people are going to laugh at me. But people are going to tell me to be quiet. But people are going to shout me down. They shouted the blind man down too. Zacchaeus couldn't see over the crowds. He was a publican. He may not have even wanted to show himself in public. He probably, lo <laughs> he probably locked himself in a room and counted his money when he wanted, to, when he wanted to, to, to get away from all the people that were scorning him. But you know what? He said, on this day, I need to see that man. So he climbed the sycamore tree. He would not be dissuaded. He climbed the tree. Don't let anyone dissuade you from Christ. Zacchaeus was that man of slight stature, a sinner of sinners, like the publican who Jesus spoke of in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican just a couple of weeks ago. This man knew that he had no right to fellowship with Jesus. No, none of us do. None of us have the right to fellowship with Christ. This man understood how vile he was. And that's exactly the position that readies us for Christ. Never allow the reality of your sinfulness to discourage you from fellowship with Christ. The reality of your sinfulness is why Christ died. Now, don't stay in your sin. Don't wallow in your sin. Follow Christ out of it. But don't let the fact that you are a flawed person keep you from following, keep you from Christ. Christ came to save sinners. Don't be dissuaded because of who you are. I'm not talented. I don't have ambition. I lack vision. I'm too sinful. I'm too weak. I'm too ugly. I'm not smart enough. These things do not define God's capacity to work through you any more than they define God's capacity to save you. God loves to use flawed, broken vessels because then he gets the glory. We talked about it last week. Let's read the verses again in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. The very fact that you lack in some area of life might be the very reason God wants you serving in, in that capacity. May I, may I just personally testify for a moment. I hate public speaking. The very fact that I was not a good public speaker, that I was not in a position to ever want to public speak, may very well have been the thing that caused God to want to use me behind the pulpit because every time I get behind the pulpit and I speak, it's a testimony to the fact that it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Because that's not, this is not me. I mean, I'm speaking, but it's, 
It's not what I like to do. I'm, uh, it's not me. It's not my natural characteristic. I was not the guy who volunteered for, for the debate club or the speech club. I took as little speech as I could, and I got up, and, I, and as soon as that bell dinged 10 minutes, I sat down. That was me. But then I was called to preach. And God enabled me to do something that was not natural. Quite possibly because it was not natural, because that's how God works, because then who gets the glory? It can't be me, because this isn't me. This is not normal Jamin Wickler. God gets the glory because he has chosen a weak vessel to do great things. God chooses the marred and the broken and the weak and the tired and the despised to be vessels of honor as they submit themselves to Christ so that even those of talent and power and honor must first humble themselves before the Lord before he will truly use them. Now, it doesn't mean if you have a gift that you shouldn't use the gift. Use the gift. But that gift has to be submitted to God in order to be used properly of him. To that end, if you are among the weak or the broken or the tired or the despised, if you're sitting there and you're dissuaded from serving Christ because, well, I'm just not good at speaking to people, so I'm not going to share the gospel. Well, I just get all tongue-tied, so I'm not going to pray in, in the congregation. Well, I'm just not, I, I'm not a very good singer, so I'm not going to come up and sing a special. Well, I'm just not this and I'm not that. Well, do you know what? Maybe that simply means that God can be glorified more through you as he enables you to do the things that he's calling you to do, asking you to do, lending himself to do, and all of the excuses are saying, I can't do it because of this. Maybe the very reason why God is asking you to do that is because he can be glorified in you. Never be dissuaded or discouraged from Christ. If Christ is calling you, now, I'm not saying that if, if, if God's not asking you to do something, I'm not saying go out and force it. <laughs> I don't have any talent in this area and I don't feel any compulsion by God, but I'm going to do it. That's not what I'm saying. But if God is asking you to step outside of your comfort zone for something, he might be asking you to step outside of that comfort zone because he wants to enable you to do something and then he can get the glory for it because that's not you. Third and finally, Faith always anticipates works. Faith always anticipates works. We regularly have said recently at Legacy Baptist Church that faith precedes blessing, right? That blessing comes after faith, that you have to step out in faith before the blessing comes. This is a second faith concept. Faith anticipates works. In other words, when you say you have faith, there is an expectation and an anticipation that that faith is going to work itself out in works, in obedience. That's how faith is proven. Zacchaeus', Zacchaeus faith becomes evident by the change that comes upon him that day. That when he is communing with Christ on that day, he determines that instead of taking, he's now going to become a giver that instead of self-indulgence and intimidation and um, taking advantage of people, he is going to right his former wrongs and he is going to begin to become generous, something that he was obviously not before. Now we know, as we established last week and we've established several times, when the certain ruler came last week and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
We, we mentioned this quite clearly that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I am not telling you, please don't get me wrong this evening. I am not telling you that your salvation demands works. I am not telling you that, that if, if you do not exhibit certain works after your salvation that you are not saved. I'm not saying any of that this evening. Please don't get me wrong here. But make no mistake, James chapter 2 is in our Bibles. And James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 say this, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. A faith that has no works, a faith that has no fruit, a faith that has no evidence, is a faith that does not exist. It simply does not exist. I'm not saying that because you have no, because you, you are not doing certain works, you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. If your faith does not bear any fruit in your life, if your faith has no bearing on the way you think or your desires or your actions, then it's because the faith is not there. That's why. I can say all day that I have faith that that chair will hold me up. But if I don't exercise my faith in the chair, that faith is useless. I believe this chair will hold me up. And then I go sit in that chair. And the next week I say, I believe this chair will hold me up. And the next week I sit in, the chair, in that chair. And I end up sitting in every single chair in the church, but I've never sat in that chair. Well, then why should anyone believe that I believe that that chair can hold me up? My, my, my faith is not being manifest. My faith, I've never exercised faith in the chair. I believe this chair will hold me up and then I sit down in the chair. Now my faith has, has some weight to it. Now you know that I know and I know that I know and everyone knows that I know that I believe the chair would hold me up. We can say all day that we have faith. But it doesn't matter unless that faith bears that fruit, uh, that evidence, unless it has some teeth to it, we can say. We can say all day that we believe the Bible as I preach from passage to passage to passage, right? We've talked about prayer. We've talked about offenses. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about good works. We've talked about giving. We've talked about loving. We've talked about abiding. We've spoken many times about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We've talked, we, we, we've talked, we've talked through. We've, we've talked about all of these things. And I, I would expect that everyone in this room walks away with, uh, there, there's, there's room for disagreement. Nobody in here, I'm sure, dis uh, that agrees with everything that I've said. But as a whole, in general, you've walked away, generally speaking, I'd like to think saying, yes, I believe what the Bible says about that. I believe what the Bible says about forgiveness, that it needs to be um, till seven times that I, that, that I need to forgive my brother. And I believe what the Bible says about offenses, that it were better for me that a millstone be hung around my neck and I be cast into the sea than that I offend one of my brethren in Christ. And I believe what the Bible says about prayer, that I need to pray with perseverance and that I need to pray with importunity and that I need to pray with all of these things. But if none of that actually has touched your life, 
If none of it has found its way into your life, if you've walked out of here and you've never once again thought about it, and when it comes time to forgive, you say, I'm not forgiving. And when it comes time to not offend a brother or sister in Christ and you know it, you say, I'm going to offend anyway. And when it comes time to pray, you say, I'm not going to pray. Is that faith? Do you actually believe what the Bible says? If th This is what Jesus came to last week with a certain ruler, right? The certain ruler comes up and says, good master. And Jesus says, you call me good, but there's only one good that's God. If we call him our Lord and Savior, but we don't do what he says, is he really our Lord? He, he might still be our Savior, but is he our Lord? Is he our Lord if we ignore him and we slight him? and we don't do what he asks us to do? Is that faith? Is it faith if I say I believe everything, but I don't do any of it? Faith anticipates works. It does. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Because works are the validation of our faith. Works are what tell you that you actually have faith. If you see no works, you should, you should be the one questioning whether you have faith. If I see no works, I should be questioning myself whether I have faith. Because if I don't see the fruit of it in my own life, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my faith. How do we know whether or not we really believe what the Bible says is true? your works will declare it. Maybe not always immediately and perfectly. Not, not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you walk away from here and you know something is true and if you don't immediately have a lightning bolt change in your life that you don't believe it and that you don't care and, and whatnot. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that if you walk away after a message on forgiveness and you know that there's people that you need to get right with and you just plain say, no, I'm not going to do it, that tells you something. That tells you something, and that something is your faith is not there. Now, if you walk away and you say, I'm going to forgive that person, and you really try, and it's not going all that great, but you're trying, well, there's faith there, isn't there? It's not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us is. But there's faith there. Your works will declare it. Faith always anticipates works. Faith is not the work. Faith is not a work. But if the works never happen, the faith doesn't exist. So the question as we close is this, how are we doing today? These last two are really the points of, of, of decision or the points of, of effort here. Never be dissuaded or discouraged from Christ. Are you living dissuaded or discouraged? Most of us in here are believers, possibly a couple of our young people or a couple of us perhaps are unbelievers. I don't know your heart. You know your heart before the Lord. Have you been dissuaded because of something from Christ? I talked this morning about Molly in our morning service about this young lady at the jail who said that she didn't want to come to Christ because she felt as though she had to give up her sin before she could come to Christ and she didn't want to give up her sin. She, she had been taught that repentance means you repent of your, you turn away from your sin and turn to Christ instead of turning to Christ away from your sin. That little nuance where people say, okay, in order to come to Christ, I have to give up my sin first. And you can't give up your sin until you come to Christ, right? 
And so she was in this catch 22 where she said, I don't want to be slapping God in the face saying, I believe when I don't. There's a genuineness there. But what was happening is she, she was being dissuaded from Christ. Christ was standing there with open arms saying, come to me and I will make you whiter than snow. And she had something, some former teaching whispering in her ear, you're not worthy. You can't do it. You don't want it enough. Are you being dissuaded from Christ? Or maybe you desire to serve the Lord and yet... There's some reason why you've just said, I can't do that. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. I don't have the right. I'm not godly enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have this. I don't have that. It's just not it for me. But God is compelling you and you're resisting. Never be dissuaded from Christ. He can fill in those gaps if you'll exercise the faith. Number two, and that last bit, faith always anticipates works. Do you have the works? Do you have the desire? Are you living it out? Do you see the fruit of God working in you? Maybe it's slow. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. I'm not asking you to walk away from here perfect. I hope I'm not asking that because I would fail, just as anybody in here would. That's not the point. But the point is, do you see the manifestation of faith in your life Do you desire the things of the Lord? Are you pursuing Him? Are you seeking to grow in Him? Are you exercising the faith? Are you doing the works? Are you listening to the Word of God and obeying it? Or are you hearing what the Word of God says and then you go home and it's all done? Out the window. Yeah, I believe that. Yep, I believe the teaching of Christ, but you don't live it. You're not actually exercising it. Look, faith without works is dead. If you want to validate that faith, if you want to truly prove to yourself that you, that, that you believe the Bible, well, then start living the Bible. God will help. That's what he's there to do. It is he that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, right? You walk in the Spirit and you'll bear the, the fruit of the, uh, of the Spirit. So I'm not saying that you have to go and, and, and do this on your own. Christ is there. The Spirit of God works. But do you actually have the faith for him to work with? Because faith precedes blessing. Faith anticipates works. If the works aren't there, then the faith is likely not there because it's not about you. As you exercise the faith, God works in you through his Holy Spirit. He brings these things to pass. If you don't see the works, do you have the faith? Let's close in prayer.